You're listening to Talking Tricks, the home of amazing stories from magic, circus, variety, and comedy performers. Hello and welcome to Talking Tricks, a podcast with us, Kane and Abel, two magicians with the exact same voice, two magicians coming to you from the heart, the soul, the throng of the Adelaide Fringe Festival. And coming up on Talking Tricks, we're going to be talking to an award winner from this year's festival, Jaden Redden, who's been awarded Best Magic. And we'll be talking to him about his show, Experts at the Card Table. But before then, Ed Kane, what have you seen at this festival that's particularly struck a chord? Well, it's quite hard to see things at this festival, Abel. I mean, the main difference to this obviously being the second biggest arts festival in the world, um, for any of our listeners that haven't been before, the main difference is that it all happens at night, really. It's very much a festival for the local people. It's not like Edinburgh where you can dance around all day and watch four or five shows. So it is difficult to get to see shows. That being said, I have been to see a couple of shows. I went to watch a thing called Man in the Mail, which is a sort of physical theatre circus. It's a story which he claims is a true story. Whether it is or not, I don't know. But I was... I was into it as if it was a true story, a true love story, Um, and he seemingly is able to balance on anything, Um, but a very, very good show. Um, Also Dietrich is wonderful, uh, which is a show all about Marlena Dietrich, it's a one-woman show. Um, So it is technically drag, but it's it's not like drag I've ever seen before, you know, it's, it's almost like an impersonation rather than a... There's a lot of drag here in Adelaide. Um, yeah, that's about it really, that's all I've had time to see. Haven't seen any magic. Saw Jaden, which we're going to talk about, so we're going to hear all about Jaden. Um, very interesting show. It's kind of the type of magic show that I think most magicians dream of doing. Very close up, very intimate, a little bit like an L&L publishing. DVD when you're all sat around a table doing card tricks. Absolutely, and uh, well, are you interviewing me or are we having a conversation? We're having a conversation. I asked you a question. That's how conversations actually work. You didn't respond to any of the things I was saying to you. Well, I responded internally. You've got all journo. Yeah, well, they can't see you responding internally. Well, what I will add then, if you want me to add so that it feels more like a conversation than an interview, is Man in the Mail is a fantastically well-told story about a man who is has his lover ripped away from him and posts himself in the mail to get to her because he doesn't have a passport. True story, imagining, we're not sure at the minute, but either way, it's very interesting and will continue to tour the world, no doubt. And Dietrich's National Duty, yeah, fantastic, fantastic, fantastic show. Let's call that our gig of the week this week and then we haven't got to bother doing the gig of the week bit yeah then we don't have to and we don't have to pay Amy Owen for a jingle this week we don't have to pay Amy Owen for the jingle because you may or may not know that we are recording this in in a garage we're recording this in the garage of where we're staying well they wouldn't know that because you haven't told them yet we're we're in a bunker we're in an underground bunker they might be able to think that sounds like a garage and there's a little gate that we can't kind of do much about so you might be able to hear some trees blowing in the distance there's some birds It's all very pretty in Australia. Yeah, and I guess the big news is we've met two people this week that used to be neighbours. Yeah, Officer Erin someone. Yeah. Who we knew before. But we didn't know she was in Neighbours. No. But she famously once had uh, relations with Michael Beagle. I don't know (laughs) if we can leave that bit in. 
course we can. We haven't said who she is. Yeah. And no one knows who Michael Beagle is. But they might. That's a joke purely for Paul Beck. Okay. And maybe Maggie Fane. Okay, well, they'll have. People might research Officer Erin and then they'll find out. And then also, we met Bad Boy Cassidy. I think his first name was Casey Cassidy, but he was a bad boy, reformed bad boy. He had long hair. He, he looked like a bad boy. He did look like a bad boy. It's quite exciting when you. And he wasn't in Heartbreak High. No, but he was in another one of those ones, right? It's he kind of looked like the dude out He looked like, he looked very Australian, didn't he? Mm. That's the nice thing about being in Australia, you'll, you'll be chatting to someone. It's because there's nothing out. to do in the daytime, you have to go out and talk to people. And then you find out that, that everyone's been in Neighbours. So that's exciting. But i tell you who hasn't been in Neighbours, Jane and Redmond. Oh, look at that, seamlessly moving in there. And he joins us on Talking Tricks. The number one podcast for great stories from the world of magic, circus, comedy and variety. You're listening to Talking Tricks. Joining us now on Talking Tricks is Jaden Redden, who has just completed a run here at the Adelaide Fringe Festival, an expert at the card table, joins us now to talk through it all. Jaden, first and foremost, how's the run for you this year? Runs been quite good. It was uh, a very interesting show this year where it's changed a lot since previous years, but um, it's been, it was quite good, good crowds, won Best Magic Award in the first week, which was fun. Um, but yeah, it's been, a, it's been good, been fun, and it's all over. I want to delve into what the show looks like, feels like, uh, but you mentioned winning that Magic Award there, so let, let's touch on that quickly. What do you think it is about this show that appealed so much to the judges of these weekly awards that we have here in Adelaide? Um, yeah, interesting question, because the... Humble break here, but the show won last year as well, um, and it was, a, it was a very different show last year than it is this year. Um, and I've always been surprised with the reaction to this show in particular because I didn't think people were going to enjoy it at all. Um, but this year, it ha- it it's gone more into a theatrical magic show esque kind of vibe. Um, so I think people what what may have caught the Judge's attention was that aspect, that it was a bit different than a lot of the other magic shows at the Fringe this year in that it did have that theatrical bend to it, as well as it being a close-up, intimate show, but also for a theatre audience. So I think the intersection of those things hopefully has done something good for my <laughs> name and the judges and stuff like that. I would imagine, and our listeners are very much a mix of uh, magicians, variety artists, uh, hobbyists, and all sorts. So I would imagine, certainly on the magic side of things, people will be familiar with the expert at the card table. I hope so. Um, but there may be people listening that aren't familiar with it. So first and foremost, um, tell us a little bit about about that book that this show is influenced by, mm-hmm. and why you were inspired to base a show on that. Sure. Um, so the book The Expert at the Card Table was um, published in 1902 by uh, S.W. Adonais and um, to borrow a line from my show, it has grown into cult status and is a legacy unsurpassed in all of magic. Um, and what's really interesting about it is not, ne- not just the technique that it was taught and how much of that has become so ingrained in what magicians do, but the story of the, the, the author S.W. Adonais and who he is and why he vanished, etc., etc., and all that kind of mystery and allure that comes from the name and this book that's just existed for, you know, forever, and it's the 
for a lot of magicians, it's the first or one of the first books they ever get, um, even though it's not probably the most accessible book in the world to, to learn from. Um, yeah, I think the story of Erdene has got me more than anything because as an up-and-coming magician and learning different card techniques, I didn't actually read the book, to be completely honest. <laughs> um, but the, I, what I found interesting was I just found myself researching and looking into all the different theories of who this guy was and where the book came from. And I really like just old books and the illustrations in there were all very like captivating. Um, and then when it came to do the show, I, I've always wanted to do just a close-up show that was just full of gambling moves and exposing like gambling demonstrations and kind of showing people how to cheat at cards essentially and that was how the show came about it was originally called the expert at the card table colon how to cheat at cards um so it came from that kind of bend where originally it was much more about saying hey you guys want to cheat at cards yeah come see this and we'll show you how to cheat at cards with a bit of a nice tacked onto the side um and the first year i did it it was in Bit more of a different story where I had like a slideshow behind me and I kind of did a little presentation about Edna's midway through the present midway through and then got on with the card stuff and the feedback I got from that year was that people didn't really care about the Edna's people and they just wanted to see cool card stuff at the card table, which is fair enough. So the second year I did it, it was just all card stuff for the entire hour with a vague reference to Edna's at the beginning and everyone was like, Oh, who's this Edna's guy? You need to talk about that more and I'm like, Oh Jesus Christ. So the third year it was this year is now the blend of that and really focusing on what is interesting to me and I think was interesting to a lot of people is that story of SW Adonais tied in with the magic to help tell that story and be entertaining as a magic show. The short answer to this I know is not a lot, but what do we know about Adonais because he's somewhat of an elusive uh, character. Yeah, he's uh, a uh, very elusive character. There's like you said, very little that we actually know for sure, um, except that the illustrations in the book were drawn by someone called Marshall, uh, Marshall D. Smith, and um, he's the only known person to have met the author knowingly, um, and he described the author as well-spoken, gentlemanly, short in stature, with a pleasant and smooth tone, um, and that's really all we have as a physical description of who he is and there's many theories of like who he may have been by going through like historical records of people around in Chicago in 1902 that potentially could have written this book. Um, and I'm often asked by people after the show like who is, who do you think it is? Who's your leading theory? And um, I don't really know. There's there's too many, and they all sound good in their own way, and all sound terrible in other ways. And what I what I really hope is that answer of who he is is he's just someone who wrote a book and then decided not to do anything with it and just did that because that's what he wanted to do and there wasn't this big massive conspiracy that he was some card cheat who died or something something he was just someone who published a book and moved on with life and do you think the mystery behind him plays a role in the book being as popular as it is or is it largely down to the quality of the material within the pages yeah interesting question it's I think it's got something to do with the the law. I th I think it's I think mostly magicians care about the the background and 
that you don't get the book because it's like oh this mysterious cool story you get the book to because someone told you to get it <laughs> essentially and it's free for the most part well, it's free online as a you know out of public domain kind of thing and it's yeah I'm not sure because I I the tricks here that are obviously performed by some magicians still now and like the diagonal palm shift and the bottom deal and second deals are all that all done today and still use Odinates as a reference. Um, but I think the story of Odinates is something you learn after you get the book. I don't think it's necessarily the reason why you get it. Yeah. And I'm sure this is a show that's popular with magicians, but the night that I came, there was people in the audience that were very, very clearly gamblers and you could get the impression that they were there to learn how to cheat with cards and then well I know there were magicians in the audience um, I wonder what the mixture has been with regard to obviously there's there's a general public and people that are just there to see a show but how sort of attended has this been by magicians and then also gamblers yeah um, I do get a fair few magicians come through a lot of local magicians that are come up to me up talk to the show and want to talk to me about you know how to become a better magician and and should I get this book etc or I have this book and I saw this show because I got the book and that kind of stuff um, so there are definitely a few magicians that come through that is uh, a large portion not a large portion but there is a portion of the audience that do come from that poker playing background and love to kind of just uh, this is the comment I get always when I leave the theater is but you can't go to the theater, can't go to the casino anymore, can you? Um, or I won't play with cards with you anymore. And, and um, that's a lot of the people do understand a little bit about cards, but I think a lot of the audiences is just people that don't know gambling at all. Because a lot of times I'll do a demonstration and show someone, hey, this is like a, f a full house or something like that, and the audience sometimes are like blank faced and like I don't know what that is. Um, so there was there is that hurdle of talking about gambling for people that don't necessarily enjoy gambling or play cards or understand what the different card faces are, um, which is a, a challenge to kind of deal with during the show. But yeah, I would I'd say the most of the audience is probably just just general punters that come to see a show, and there's obviously mixing that with magicians and. People want cheated cards. But I think now that I removed the, the subtitle How to Cheated Cards, there's a few less of those of those people there. <laughs> yeah, and there's some pretty amazing skills within the show. Um, I always kind of look at my skill set as one above a lay person when right. it comes to magic. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think you're ahead of that. Um, the second dealing, the bottom dealing it is amazing. Um, I've never actually seen someone do a middle deal live in front of me until I saw the show. Um, how tricky was it to learn all of the slides you needed uh, for this show? Um, I, I talk about in the show, and this might be a bit of a spoiler for the show, but I talk about not really liking magic at all, really, or magicians or, or, or that kind of the whole scene. So, like, the hardest part for me was actually coming up with effects to do like all the moves are stuff that I could already do and that's the stuff that I, I enjoy out of magic and playing with cards is practicing the second deal practicing the diagonal palm shift and all those difficult like trick monkey the move monkey kind of uh, moves that was all kind of there when I started and 
the the real difficult part was then picking and choosing actual routines rather than just doing this is a second deal for two minutes <laughs> you know that kind of thing and having tricks in there and gambling routines that was the most difficult part for me and I had to go back and look at some source material look at some you know Richard Turner things and some Paul Wilson things to try to get some inspiration on, on how to put tricks and magic and gambling together in cohesive kind of routines and some of those routines I do on the show are Richard Turner or Paul Wilson kind of routines um, mixed in with you know, a triumph in there as well so there's that was the difficult part was the tricks not necessarily the moves because the moves are the, the things that I enjoy most you mentioned Turner Wilson I want to talk about them and I want to talk about some of your influences but I also want to talk about uh, maybe why you don't have an interest in being part of the community of magicians so much in a safe space because I am not a member of the magic circle and have a long list of reasons why that mm. is something that just doesn't appeal to me at all. Uh, it's not to say I don't have friends who are magicians, but I have never particularly had an interest in going to a meeting with a load of hobbyists and particularly being a big part of the community. I wonder what were some of your reasons for feeling a similar way it would appear. Yeah, um, I guess learning magic in Australia, in Adelaide, um, there wasn't as strong of a magic community here to begin with. So I always felt as I was learning these things, I was learning them by myself in a way, like self-taught or, or you know, looking at books and looking at the, the, the source material and going from there. And when I was younger, I, I thought it'd be really cool to like have all these magicians around and, and talk. And, and then I had the opportunity to go to a magic club here in, in Adelaide and it I didn't enjoy it <laughs> necessarily, and then once I started getting older and looking more retrospective, introspectively, I guess, at these magic groups, I um, I just I just find magicians just very difficult to be around a lot of the time, um, particularly like the capital M magician, yeah. as as I like to call them, um, which happens to have a large crossover with the IBM or the Magic Circle or whatever it might be. Um, and there's just a lot of bravado and ego and a lot of men <laughs> and old people just, I don't know. I, I haven't, I've never really had an affinity for any of that kind of stuff. And the magic, the kind of magic that I like to do, um, is, is not necessarily the commercial style of magic that, that kind of stuff breeds and I don't really want that to Im influence the way that I, I, I do my magic because that's not how I want to be as a magician. I don't want to be perceived as a capital M magician yeah. or a magician at all really. Yeah. Someone that does magic occasionally. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a nice tag to have. Um, but talking about magicians then, uh, tell me uh, about some of the people that have inspired you from the magic world sure. that you mentioned too before. Yeah, so... Um, Paul Wilson's kind of uh, take on gambling demonstrations and his kind of style of, of doing magic is something that I have a, a great affinity for and I think he kind of sees himself in, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but kind of in, in a similar kind of way where he's, he's the guy that kind of does, does cool card demonstrations and cages some magic 
Um, and his his tricks he does are just very, 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 very simple to do a lot of the time, but just absolutely kill and make it gives the illusion of a lot of skill where not necessarily there's a whole lot of skill there, um, which is good. And then you complement that with genuine skill like the the bottom deal or something like that, and the the combination of those two things create his style of magic, which has influenced a lot of the stuff that I do, particularly cards. Um, and obviously, um, Richard Turner as well, his body of work is kind of unsurpassed and Seal is incredible and he's very much someone that just lives and breathes magic and doing, just constantly practicing and, and I just find that very, um, not, in, inspirational is probably not, not the correct word, I don't know, it, I like it, put it that way. Um, and then obviously, I say in the show as well that I don't really like card magic too much and, and that is also true because basically all the card tricks I know are in the show and there's there's two tricks. <laughs> um, so when someone sees me off the show and says, oh, can you do another trick for me? I'm like, I actually don't know any other more tricks because the, the magic I generally like to do is, is more of a mentalism kind of bend. So obviously, Darren Brown is much like all mentalists is a very big inspiration um, and another big one for me is um, Derek Dalgadio and his kind of um, approach to magic being uncompromising in that he wants to do the stuff that he wants to do and doesn't want to have to do anything else. So I, th I think I heard a story from him once that he refuses a lot of corporate gigs because that's not the magic he wants to do. He wants to do the magic he wants to do. So he would just do that and, you know, at ex great expense to himself by, by you know, refusing money. Um, but that kind of dedication to his art and the magic that he wants to do is a very big inspiration for me and the way that I don't necessarily want to do a lot of magic that some of the other magicians will do and I want to come up with my own things and have my own kind of theatrical bend on it um, has been a big inspiration for me as well. So. And have you seen Richard Turner's The Delt documentary? I have seen The Delt documentary. I've wanted to see that for a long time and it went on like a tour for like, you know, film festivals and then it was on iTunes, but it was on iTunes for America, not in Australia, and then finally got onto Netflix. And then about three years after I first heard of the, the documentary, I could see it on Netflix in Australia and I was like, oh, goodness. So I watched it probably about two months ago. Um, yeah, super great. I love it. Have you seen it? I've seen it. Um, maybe it came on UK and Australia and Netflix at the same time because I think I only watched it a few months ago and I've been wanting to watch it for ages as well. Uh, yeah, I wonder, did you feel almost a bit sorry for him at points in that? or? Yeah, like, obviously, uh, this is probably a spoiler for Delt, but you should watch it anyway, but that, it follows a point in his life where he was looking at being close-up mag magician of the, the year and and misses out on it the first time and then, spoiler alert, gets it the second time. Um, and then just listening to his story was just very, you know, he doesn't want people to have feel sad from necessarily, but it's it's a, it's not super fun, is it? I can't not, imagine. It's not super fun. And it's great. It, I love the fact how much he wanted to, to win that award because I know lots of 
magicians maybe when they win awards are kind of like yeah whatever but it was actually really sweet to see yeah how much it meant to him yeah and it was heartbreaking to see him the first time not get that award but yeah very much the same i was you like you rooting for him he's like yeah come on you can do it and then he does it and and then the resolution of the film is quite nice as well um when he finally gets to do his his, his solo show that he wants to do yeah it's great and sure people listening to this have watched it and if not they should i want a, another quick question on expert and then we'll move on to other things sure. you mentioned um ever so slightly how it had evolved over the past three years uh, i'd like to dig a little bit deeper on that how yep. has it evolved over the past three years sure um so the last two years i've done another show alongside the expert show which, which has been a mentalism show um so the first year that I did it, I had this idea of wanting to do this card show. Didn't know how I was going to do it, and it was about a month out to the fringe, and I hadn't done anything because I was focusing on the other show that I was doing. And I was like, shit, I should put together a show that I'm going to do for 30 days. <laughs> um, <laughs> so at that point, I went crazy and looking at all, all books and DVDs and figuring out what I was going to do. And basically, I just put together a set list write a bit of like scriptage in between, put together a brief little PowerPoint to play behind me on a projector, um, and just basically just winged it the first year. And went down quite well. Over that, over that season, which was 30 nights, it changed quite a lot. And that one of the benefits of doing Fringe Festivals, as, as you probably know, is that you get to do the same show back to back for a month or two weeks or whatever it might be. And that allows you to kind of workshop on the fly in front of real audiences and you end up with something that's hopefully quite decent at the end. Um, but over the course of that month, the show changed quite a lot, and there was a very intimate show. There was um, about 30 people in the maximum audience just around the card table in a dingy, retired post office here at Adelaide. Um, and, yeah, so it, was, it focused probably a little bit too heavily on the... Um, on the Erdnay's kind of story, so much so that it got a bit boring because I explained in great detail the different theories of who the author might be because I found that interesting, but no one else did. <laughs> um, and I heard that. So the next year, I decided to do it again, and I was like, wasn't sure if I was going to do the card show again, but at the last minute, a venue got offered for me that I could do the card show for the, the full duration of the Fringe, and I was like, sure, why not? I'll do it. And... Based on the feedback from the previous year, I, I stripped out a lot of the Erdnay's uh, story and just did basically an hour of close-up magic, focusing on gambling, obviously. Um, and that was that was quite successful. And then I had a few here in Adelaide. There's the, the Honeypot program, part of the Adelaide Fringe, which, if you guys don't know, is um, where a bunch of presenters, producers and stuff come to Adelaide Fringe to, to program and see, see, um, see magic, or not magic, see shows. Um, and had a few people come to the show last year and they spoke to me and said, oh, we think the show's really cool, your magic is really great, I love the intimacy, but we would like to hear more of, more of a story throughout the show. Um, and the Adonais in the book, it's like, you know, they always ask me, is that a true story? I'm like, yeah, it's a true story. And like, well, you should talk about that more because it's so interesting. And I'm like, well, I did last year and no one cared about it. <laughs> um, and then also they wanted to potentially program the show elsewhere but wanted it to play to a larger theatre. So the next year I was like, okay, I'm going to bring the expert back in for a third year. 
and this time I'll rewrite the show so it's more of a balance between the story of SWNAs and the expert at the card table as well as cards as well as playing to large audiences so that was this year's this year's show and I, I wrote down a proper script and had these little monologue bits throughout the show had a lighting designer had a dramaturg had a director and really went went to town on this this year's show and um, I think it's come out quite quite nicely and over the three, these three years I think I'm now finally got a show that's actually a, a piece of itself you know like a, a complete piece and um, yeah so quite happy with how it's developed over the last couple of years but it's you know it's been one step forward one step back and then now finally we're here I promised that was going to be the last question on this show but two more have come up two more questions that, so. <laughs> um, well the, the one's a question the other is a story I want you to tell mm. um, but the first one the question I know that obviously in the show you have a camera that gives you know a closer look at the table and the stuff you're doing. Lots of people might be listening to this thinking that's something I need to add. I know you're a tech savvy guy. So just talk me through kind of A, the setup you have and B, any advice you might have for someone that wants to have a live camera feed during sure. the show. I didn't want a live camera feed during the show. Which, because the show in the previous two years was quite intimate, and that's what I really enjoyed about the show was its intimacy, and wanting to expand that into a larger audience where the audience could be 200, 300, 500 people doesn't work. Everyone sit around a card table, so you have to introduce projection. And I really dislike projection in magic shows, particularly ones that play to large theatres, because it feels like the audience is just watching a TV screen now. Absolutely. And why go to the theatre if you're just going to stick your head up and watch a TV screen for an hour? So that's why I kind of like card magic because if you do it on a, on a big stage, you have to have a projector because you need to see the cards. But then why are you doing cards if you have a stage and 500 people watching you? Why not do something that can play the entire crowd? Um, so I wrestled really hard with how I was going to do the projection in this show and with... Um, my production designer on the show, Tom Kitney, we kind of talked about bringing the projection really, really close to my back so the audience doesn't have to shift their focus as they look from me to the, the projection. And the production design as well, it's not just a, a white projection screen. It was projected onto a, um, a Hessian kind of drapey, raggy thing that was making it look like a 1902 Chicago rail card essentially. Um, so I think my advice to having projections in your show is to make the projection part of the design of the show and don't think of it as an afterthought of saying, hey, it'd be great to have a camera so they could see my hands. Maybe question why do you need a camera in the first place and try not to have it. But if you have to have it, make it work. Make it make sense in your show because there's nothing worse than having a projection screen on a lovely theatre stage, I think. But to talk technical-wise, we've got a, uh, a Blackmagic pocket cinema camera attached to the roof, which is definitely overkill for a projection onto a card table. Uh, and that goes into Tom Kitney's computer through QLab and sends it out to this projection, which is projection mapped onto the, the drapey fancy thing. Um, but in previous years, I've done projections with my iPhone before as well, so it's like, it doesn't have to be technical. 
but you're just going to make sure it makes sense for your your show, I reckon. Great advice. And then final thing on, I suppose, this run and all this is tell me the story about the uh, the fire alarm during the run. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, so the venue that I'm in is called the Nolodian Hall, and it's also the venue that you're in. Um, it's attached to the building that contains the National Seed Vault for South Australia, um, which basically means there's a bunch of seeds in there that can be used to repopulate the native plants of South Australia if the end of the world happened. Um, so it's a government property and it's very highly guarded. And one day, literally one minute before we were about to let the audience into my show, the fire alarm goes off. Um, and my show has a lot of haze and we thought the haze may have um, set off the fire alarm. Basically, everyone got, had to get evacuated from the, the building and the fire brigade came, armed police came. There was a big, massive ordeal and it turned out to be just a bug flying past the sensor in the room next to us. So it had nothing to do with us, but it was this big dramatic thing. It was flashing red lights and there was haze coming out of the building, so the audience thought it was on fire. And um, Tom, my production designer, comes up to me and says, do you want to do the show outside? And I was like, uh, and he's like, we're going to do it outside. We're going to do it. And he grabbed the light, grabbed the floodlight and took us outside in front of the, the bar and we're in the Botanic Gardens. So it's like this big, nice, beautiful international rose garden right next to us. And we set up about, you know, I think it was 40 people in that, the audience that night around, uh, around my card table with one spotlight on it out in the, in the cafe outside the venue while there was a crisis going on with National Seed Vault next door and all these fire sirens going off and I just did the show in the open and it was uh, harkening back to the previous years where it was just an intimate show just around the card table. So I felt really comfortable doing it, performing it and the audience that night had a very cool story to go home and, and tell the, their friends about the venue burning down almost and doing the show outside and it, they seemed to love it so it went out really well actually. Yeah. And did you enjoy it? I enjoyed it. I was quietly, I was quietly terrified at one point. Um, and I was like, oh, no, I'm going to have to cancel the show. And I'm like, oh, don't. And then just did it outside. And I was slightly apprehensive to do it. But then I was just like, we're just going to do it. These people are here to see a show. The show went on. And it was great. And um, what advice then, I suppose, would you give someone looking to do the Adelaide Fringe for the first time? The Adelaide Fringe is, I think, a great place to do a show that's um, to do a show that's gonna you're gonna perform it hopefully fourteen or thirty times over the, the season. My my advice is, is is try to find a venue that's going to suit what you want to do. Um, because there's a lot of venues here in Adelaide, and there's these there's a couple main hubs where a lot of the a lot of the fringe-going audience go, and you might want to go there because that's where all the foot traffic is, and that's where potentially a lot of the ticket sales are, and that's kind of the name recognition you get from those venues. But depending on what your show is, it may not be ideal because I've done shows in, in Gluttony, which is one of the big venues here, um, and it's basically a gigantic tent. Um, with lots of noise bleed from the outside and no blackout and a very basic lighting set up a lot of the time. And if that's going to work for your show, then great, do it. But if you want to do a show that, say, that I wanted to do this year, which is a bit more theatrical and needed 
a blackout and a proper design lighting rig I went a little bit outside of the, the, the mainstream and, and we're at the, is at the Knoll, which is this lovely kind of space that allowed all of that. And I guess my advice is to look at what kind of show you want to do, find the best venue you want to do and work from there rather than necessarily going to the largest venue straight away. Because I think the venue plays a very important role in your show. And how does your fascinating lies project, for want of a better word, differ from the kind of material and presentation of expert? Sure. So, um, fascinating lies is, I guess, it's my production company that has produced all my shows, and I, I do it with one of my friends, Andrew, here in Adelaide, um, and it it's basically just the 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 vehicle for me to do what I want to do and whether that be shows for the LED Fringe or producing other things as well or consulting on, on various different projects it sort of kind of goes through the mothership of fascinating lies and it comes from the name of my first show which is Reading Minds and Other Fascinating Lies which is a huge name but I really like the fascinating lies bit at the end so basically what is just a just a shell of a company to do things with <laughs> and outside of the fringe then are you kind of full-time working on these sort of performance projects or what other things do you kind of do to fill out your year um yeah so magic is not my um my main warehouse it's you know a part of me and mostly comes out during the fringe i don't do many corporate gigs unless the right kind of gig finds itself um, but lately I've been working in producing different theatre adjacent things so whether it be magic involved or uh, producing a play which I did this year during for the fringe which is a bilingual play French and English adaptation of the importance of being earnest um, which has got nothing to do with magic at all <laughs> or um, right now we're recording in this place called like make space which is attached to act now theater where i'm producing a um a couple of things here as well so my uh my time is is divvied up between all sorts of things at the moment, not necessarily magic and i also i study as well at the moment i'm a constant studier so i'm doing a master of fine arts and cultural leadership at the moment so i have a, a lots of things on <laughs> um, so how far through are you then with that Degree or master's degree, how far from you? So I've just started this year, but it's coming on the back of finishing a graduate diploma in arts management last year. Um, so the one I'm doing this year is at NIDA, which for you UK-based person is the National Institute of Dramatic Arts, um, which is really quite, quite cool. Um, it's quite intense, but it's um, it's a stepping stone of kind of what I want to eventually do is just be a arts leader, manager, person, producing things and doing fun things in theatres. <laughs> nice. And it's something we spoke about that I didn't know before we turned this on is that you and I had done the same job at one point, which yes. was uh, with The Illusionists. Um, you've done it more than me <laughs> for a longer case of time. And this is kind of running the merch stand, so to speak, although yep. there's much more to it. Talk to me about how you first became involved in it and what the experience was like for you. Sure. So um, the 
massive touring show, The Illusionist, as we know it today, um, had its humble beginnings in, in Australia um, as, a, as a show at the Sydney Opera House and then from there it went on a little tour around Australia starting in Adelaide. And they needed some people to basically sell magic merch at the end of the show and demonstrate the tricks. And at the time I, I knew someone who was involved with the, the, the production and was in charge of running the merch and they reached out to me to, to demo the magic essentially. Um, so I started doing that, it was straight out of high school, I was probably 18 or something, and um, just to kind of reiterate the story that I was telling <laughs> you before we started, um, it was quite a, quite a formative experience for me, I guess, because it was the first time being exposed to a large-scale magic production, because um, they don't come to Adelaide very often, although they do now, because of the illusionists, I guess. Um, and I got to watch the show about 35 times over the course of 20 days or something like that. Um, and for me, it just kind of destroyed my, my brain a little bit because you see the show once and you think, oh, this is a great show. This was a very unique experience for me. I go home now as an audience member and say, that was a cool show. And I tell my friends about it. But for me, that night, there was another show that I was also watching, and it was the same show again, and it was identical to the show that happened at 2 o'clock and now happening at 7 o'clock. And it just started to melt my brain a little bit that this show that felt so unique and personal the first time you watched it happens over and over and over and over again for 30 days and then goes to another city and does it again and again and again and again. And I guess I never really thought about performance that way or, or, or magic that way, that it's creating the moment for an audience member where they have this unique experience for themselves, but doing that en masse multiple times a day, days on a time, <laughs> days at a time. Um, so the, it kind of kick-started my interest in doing magic a little bit more seriously and professionally and then also just stuff I'm doing now, just being involved in the theatre and the arts and all that kind of fun stuff. Because coming out of uni coming out of high school, I was a a maths major and a theoretical physics university student, uh, essentially going into university doing doing those things. And I graduated a degree of pure mathematics and finished that degree and realised that's not what I wanted to do because this one little experience back in the illusionist, I wanted to be in theatres all the time. And they, they come back with the Illusionist 2.0 2 and then 1903 and I did the same thing again, selling the, the merch at the, the front of the, the theatre and doing lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of Hummer card. <laughs> um, what, what did you kind of learn then or what did you get from the repetition of doing the same trick continuously over weeks and weeks and weeks for just a, a new set of people? Yeah, it was, yeah, it, it was just a, a quite important lesson, I guess, being able to separate yourself from what you do in the moment and what you're doing for the person that's on the other side of it. And yes, it's the thousandth time you've done it, but it's the first time they've seen it. So it's like you always got to make sure that what you're doing is going to be, like, you got to think about it from that perspective, from the person coming up to you and and seeing your photo card that, you know, all magicians may roll their eyes at and say, oh, it's just the Hummer card or whatever. But to an audience member, they're like, he's floating a card right now. 
and they're about to go into a magic show and see something that's going to go for two and a half hours, it's going to blow their minds, they go home and they tell their friends about it. And for you, that's just another day in the office because you're, you're doing a thing and the show's happening again, there'll be another show later on that, that night. And I think that just thinking about that was the, the, the important lesson I took out of it and, and how, how we were to think about what we do from the perspective of the audience. And then I, when we did it, I just found being able to watch that show every day, you learn, there were certain lessons to learn from each individual member of the cast. Who were some of the members of the cast that struck a, a chord with you, so to speak? Yeah. So um, in the production that started in Adelaide, the, my favourite out of the, the group was, was Jeff Hobson, who, those who don't know him, is a kind of com- comedy magician that is just insanely hilarious. Um, and he did, throughout the show, this pickpocketing routine where he kept stealing watches from the audience and you don't realise until the very end when he pulls out 15 watches from his pocket, so he's stolen throughout the entire show. And the first time I got to that punchline, I was just destroyed because I was like, didn't know. I was just laughing my head away and like, you know. Then seeing that 30 times after that, knowing where he was pickpocketing all these things and still seeing how he could negotiate his way through the audience to, to do these and just seeing the, the level of professionalism and like just pure technique and skill that he had learned over doing it thousands and thousands of times was something that I was like well if I'm going to do this hummer card for 30 days in a row I'm going to be damn good at this hummer card and learn different techniques and make sure I can do the all the different flourishes and and know how to recreate that experience again for the next set of audience members. So yeah, Jeff was my highlight of, of that show, definitely. Cool, and anyone else? Um, so in it as well, they have um, got Kaylin and Ginger, which is a, uh, a duo that do like illusions. And they were kind of the first kind of illusion people that I've seen up close before. Very shortly after this, I saw David Copperfield as well, which kind of blew my mind again. But seeing illusions up close and see and seeing how well scripted they were, like their delivery each night was just perfection. Like it was bang on. Never, nothing phased them during their, their routine. And that was just something that I had never really seen before because you don't really see a show twice. But seeing it again and seeing the same mannerisms, the same kind of inflections at different points, repeated show after show after show was just like, once again, it was just one of those things where it was like, they operate on like a different level because they just do this so much all the time and their, show, their performance is just so well owned that I had to question myself and say, well, every time I do a trick, I'm basically doing it for the first time <laughs> and you never had to do it a hundred million times before and I guess there were highlight for me because a the illusions were pretty kick-ass and just you know from a technique point of point of view just having a script nailed down and seeing how that affects your performance was was quite eye-opening and we've kind of touched on a lot of things that you've maybe potentially got coming ahead with obviously your degree that you're studying for the 
potential theatre things you might want to produce, but I wonder what are some of your sort of, what's on your bucket list for, for things you want to achieve? Um, I've never been to the uh, Edinburgh Festival Fringe and um, I think coming out of this Adelaide Fringe that's definitely on the cards because um, I've never felt that I've had the show to take over to Edinburgh because uh, it is quite far away and it's quite an ordeal to go through Edinburgh so I wanted to make sure I have my chops about me when I do it and I think the show that I have this year potentially might be it and this year there's been a lot of people that are interested in talking to me about going to Edinburgh and from the honeypot kind of thing um, so that might be on the cards this year or, or next year or at some point that's definitely what, something I want to do and tick off my bucket list and and see all the fusses about in Edinburgh um, and I want to now that I've done this card show in Adelaide you know, three years in a row I'm pretty keen to to see what I'm going to do next year and use all the, the lessons I've learned this year about putting on a bit more of a theatrical piece for the fringe and kind of see how I can learn everything I learned from this year to put on a new magic show next year. Jaden, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Talking Tricks with Caden Abel. Please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast.